stupid. He comes across in front of me every single time he overtakes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! A catchphrase died, and a small Japanese man took the ultimate prize in motorsports. It was a good day. Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Andre Harrison, and welcome to episode 88 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. And uh, sadly, we are a man down this week because Mr. RJ O'Connell is currently praying at the altar of the Nashville Predators as they take part in getting one of the Stanley Cup finals this week. And uh, yeah, best of luck to him and all that. But sadly, he's not here, but we still have Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yes, yes. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Sadly, unfortunate. Sadly, unfortunate set of circumstances led to my fantasy team not being here. Oh, really? What happened, King? Everybody crashed. <laughs> Everybody crashed. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, <laughs> like, I want to act smug about this, but I, I, even I felt a bit bad on this one because, like, literally, like, half the people's picks were down the gunner for most people <laughs> more on that later but um gosh uh, sadly king is no longer second ranked in the world um <laughs> we'll, we'll deal with the consequences of that later as king tries to strangle me from beyond the other side of the keyboard but some general housekeeping first uh let's get some stuff out of the way here you can find us on youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 and we had a blast with day of classics 2 streaming the 75th monaco grand prix and then of course the 101st running of the indianapolis 500 nearly seven hours of entertainment for you um thanks to everybody that tuned in and joined the podcast joined the podcast itself to, to take to take part it was it was an absolute blast it was complete chaos, and Chris Cook hijacked the show at the end. Um, so yay, basically. But um, it was it was a fun time. So glad glad you guys all enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, we'll be back for one of our traditions. We normally always do Canada anyway, so that'll most likely be in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so keep an eye out for that one a little bit nearer the time. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We're on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. And if you want to follow us on Twitter personally, we're at Harrison101HD and at Ryan Eric King. That's with two Ks. RJ is at RJ O'Connell. He's not actually here recording this live, but he's appearing via seance. Um, <laughs> we've got an Ouija board with us, and apparently it's inter- interlacing points in the show. RJ may or may not have recorded some segments to talk about some stuff in the podcast. So, hey. For those RJ O'Connell fans out there, all four of you, you've got plenty of RJ still on the show, even if he's not actually here with us recording on Discord live. Ah, well. Anyway, if you really like us and you like backing us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Keep an eye out for that. I've got a really cool idea of that coming up in the month of June to make up for the really busy schedule we had last week. We had to do three shows because obviously one of them being the Nikki Hayden tribute show. And thanks everybody to listen to that as well. But uh, without further ado, let's get into keeping it 101. And whoa, uh, a lot, a lot to, to get into this time. We'll save RJ segments on the E60 with PK about at the end of the segment. But 
King, did you see this shocking, like, Monaco bar tab we found on Twitter? No, I missed it. <laughs> okay, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I'm just gonna sc- scroll down my Twitter mentions and, and find it. And, um, whew, it's, it's, it's nuts, to say the least. Uh, I know Monaco, we all know it's, you know, rich person's paradise, um, royalty, you name it, they're all there. This was a receipt that somebody found from Nikki Beach at Fairmont Monte Carlo. And um, I, some of it's in French, so I'm, I'm going to find it uh, hard to translate some of this, unfortunately, because, you know, I'm English, therefore we're ignorant when it comes to languages. Sorry, it's part of the problem here. Um, but... Uh, some of these are ridiculous. I mean, King, would you pay twelve euros for a coke? No. <laughs> a tenner for a coke? Yes. Like there's like there's two cokes on here at, at at twelve euros each, and that's like the least egregious thing on this list. Um, there is one like tiramisu, but not just that, King. It's an extra extra large tiramisu. <laughs> extra extra large. I, I wonder no. what the Definition of extra extra larges. It's as big as my head. <laughs> like like it literally says tiramisu XXL written on it. It's thirty three euros. It's like holy god. There's there's tobacco in there. There's one for fifty. There's one for two hundred euros. Uh, two French F R A I S H at twenty euros each. What is that? Google that. I was to type on my keyboard real quick. Um, oh, it's a salad. <laughs> it's French for salad. The salads were twenty euros, King. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> uh, two loop a la plancha at sixty-two euros each. Fourteen cassette casquettes at, at seventy-five euros. Like, what's that? Casquettes. Hang on. Like I'm, I'm resorting to Google to translate stuff here. I, I, I um, love that that you you knew you were going to talk about this before the show, and you didn't Google this beforehand. <laughs> yeah. See, I came prepared. <laughs> Uh, clearly, I think it's I think it's French for cap of some kind. Yeah, for seventy five euros each, so that's like a thousand and fifty right there. Um, two pineapple cocktails, one hundred and eighty euros each, King. Uh, so that's two of those for three sixty. Um, but there's 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 one there's one cheaper bottle of champagne, which is going for a, a mere twelve thousand three hundred and fifty euros. Like that's the. <sighs> Like that's the second cheapest like champagne they picked up. There was another bottle in there for ten and a half thousand euros. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to the big one yet. <laughs> I'm <just> like, there is <laughs> who picked up the stuff. Yeah, it's like one Midas Armand de Brignac. Apologies for butchering that, French listeners. Um, it's one hundred and thirty thousand euros. <laughs> 130,000 euros, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I don't know what to tell you. It's... That's 113,000 pounds. For, 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 so let's call it maybe 150k in, in, in American. <laughs> I just... <laughs> could you ever imagine getting to that point in life where you can throw 100 grand on a bottle of champagne and it's no big deal? I could, I could probably live off a hundred grand for a year. King, you could live off a lot. You could live off a lot less than a hundred grand. That, that'd be. 
<laughs> like, what, are you throwing in three holidays a year? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> so that came to a sizzling grand total. The whole bill was 154,953 euros. Uh, and, um, yeah, 20% of that was VAT. <laughs> got it. Like, government there is... got to get their pay. Yeah, government's going to get their $26,000 in tax in. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or euros, I should say. I wonder, did that include the tip? <laughs> that must have been one happy waiter or waitress. Like, it's like, like, like do I want to pay it in cash or by card? <laughs> <laughs> or, or do you want to do um, that by wire transfer? <laughs> like, I accept cash, check, and broken bones. Um, <laughs> my god. Um, <laughs> like, Again, I hope that waiter got a tip or, or waitress got a tip. I, I really hope so. And I hope they split it with like their entire family because it has to <laughs> clearly have been substantial. Probably like house money. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this person didn't cheap out. If you're going to pay your tip in cash, that does not include the value of the briefcase which the cash is in. No, no, that does not count. That's like, like you could have got you could have gotten that in pre-mark for all I care. If could have just handed over in a brown paper bag. <laughs> yeah, like, 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 just, just, like, like, I want the money in like a small brown envelope, like fifties, <laughs> fifties and twenties, please, okay? Like, no small notes. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to bring this up because I know Monaco is is crazy, but I know people that have been on that have been on the podcast and want to talk about the Monaco. There is like a cheaper side to Monaco if you're willing to dig around a little bit. It's not actually all that bad if you if you're willing to venture out. But there's obviously a very rich side to it as well, and I, I think I think I remember who was on the Hangout King we, we we did for Monaco was talking about trying to add land to Monaco, add another island. <laughs> yes, yes, they're doing some rant. They're doing some land reclamation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's as if the rich can't already get richer. Um, <laughs> it's hard out there. The, the rich want to live in one specific place, and it's hard when that one specific place is really small. Got to make that. Got to make that small place bigger. They pay no income tax. They can suck my dick at this point. Quite well, frankly, well, 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 yeah, they pay, but but the property tax that's that's astronomical. Is it now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's like if you want to live in Monaco, got to rent. Gotta gotta rent. <laughs> gotta rent. Can't buy. <laughs> Sorry, David, you're not making all that money anymore. Um you're gonna have to rent now rather than buy land in Monaco. Uh sorry for your struggle, but hey, at least you're not paying ten pounds for a Coke. Um like, did it come with the gram of the other form of Coke duck just to powder it out basically? Yeah, the, the, the original Coca-Cola formula. <laughs> yeah, can I get some of that original form of coke, please, of eighteen ninety two? Please, like I, I hear it's well flavored. I hear, I heard it's in season. But um, for those asking about the one hundred thousand dollar bottle of champers, it's huge. Like follow RJ O'Connell on Twitter. He posted a picture of said bottle. My God, um, it's let's just say you wouldn't want to get hit in the head by one of those. Um, <laughs> Like King, King, have you seen it? Yeah, Adrian Sutil would have had a different court case if, if it bottle. <laughs> yeah, for manslaughter. Holy shit! Holy cow! Like, I'd say it's at least three feet tall. 
um, pr- probably fills up. It probably weighs about a hundred pounds, and y- yeah, it probably comes with its own like handcuff hotel room, <laughs> and goodness knows what else. Um, I love that RJ described it. He's basically using GJ Khaled in a swimming pool as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of just says it all, really. <laughs> like, like DJ Khaled, world's greatest living meme, with a bottle of champagne in a swimming pool, pouring it on himself. Like, it just seems like kind of redundant, really. But um, yeah, there you go. That, like, that's Monaco, everybody. Just in case you you were under any disillusions about how rich the place is. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> rich where, as all. Where out. we go from? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, Monaco, where we have massive bottles of champagne, and then Indianapolis, where you have people in the stands drinking wine out of boxes. Yep. Also, King, before I move on real quick, certain Emma Davis Dixon has literally just tweeted. Um, also, like, I don't like we love Emma on here. She's she's she's, she's kind of like our little go-to comedy magnet at this point. Um, she just tweeted, I'm going to quote, what's a week? Thanks for all the kind messages. Scott is still upset that someone else's bad day also ruined ours. <laughs> I'm just so thankful he was okay. She couldn't help herself wow, to get, to get one little jab in. <laughs> so, so, somebody, somebody at Jay Howard. Jay Howard needs to be able to defend himself. <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> at Jay Howard Racing. Defend yourself, fam. Defend yourself. At J. Howard Racing, defend yourself. (laughs) Roast the back, fam. (laughs) Emma's a big girl. She likes a good joke. She can take it. (laughs) Don't go full Jamie Carragher on us. (laughs) Just mentioned that on the air. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to get that one in, King. It was too funny not to. <laughs> uh, but, King, like you wanted to talk about Toto Wolf, didn't you? Yes, I wanted to talk about uh, the head of Mercedes-Benz Motorsport with the... I, do I say the, the cringiest interview of the weekend? To be fair, King, there are multiple contenders. Where he was unhappy with the current state of Formula One about basically everything. Hmm. Like, go on. Just, just to open up this interview nice and slow, this was the opening quote. The DNA of F1 was about the best technology with the best drivers sitting on a bullet trying to drive that bullet. Somehow, on the Millimilia... This became clear to me why I love this sport. It's about doing something that no one, that nobody else has dared to do, and with a passion for cars. Motor racing is life, and there's so much passion, and there's and so much emotion throughout all the generation of of cars and drivers. To drive these cars today, you need courage, and you need courage more on some tracks than others. And we don't want to race on tracks that are like supermarket car parks. <sighs> King, where do we begin here? Like, this is like a solid 9.0 on the cringeometer. Like, holy 
cow. It's like, there's just so many motorsport cliches in there. I don't know where they begin. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> just to go, just so, just so everyone at home knows how cringy it gets, I'm just going to read the middle section. I'll leave the last part to the end, but the middle section. When you missed a corner in the old days, you were either, you were dead or hurt. Today you miss a corner, you run wide and rejoin, but not at Monaco. Maybe not in Spa. Maybe not in Monza. Maybe not in Suzuka. Like, like, why is Toto acting like drivers getting hurt if they make a mistake is a good thing? Like, I don't know. Like, just <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah, it's like, quote, we need to go back to tracks where you realize who the best are. This, Monaco, is one of those tracks. This is where we need to go back. Yeah, just... I don't know where to begin with this one. It's just, like, this is just so cringy. It's like, okay, it's like, it's every older motorsport fan that goes on the internet and says, I think these F1 cars should go back to the old days where, you know, they had big, chunky tires, they had next to no front wings, and they've got to bring back the danger. Put gravel yeah. traps everywhere. Like, you know, who cares about the safety bollocks, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think probably someone with better views on this situation is Alexander Rossi, the IndyCar driver who used to be in Formula One. And usually most people hold Rossi as, like, when they're at a road course or a street circuit, that he's one of the guys to beat out there because he raced on circuits similar to that. And his, his words on this is like... uh Circuits in form like street circuits in Formula One are nothing like an Indy car. In Formula One, he basically said they're uh, that they're basically road courses with walls around them. Like he says, an Indy car, they're extremely bumpy. You actually feel like you're on a real road, not not a maintained racetrack that happens to be in a city. <sighs> yeah, I hate. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, again, Alex Rossi is a pretty solid go-to guy for, for things like this, and like I just, I just <laughs> when, it, when it comes to this, yeah, I, 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 I think Rossi gets it better across that there that it's more challenging and that F one is a bit pampered. Toto Wolf, yeah. on the other hand, takes it way too far in that direction, where it's like people need to get hurt or die. <laughs> Good, yay! That's just what that's just what we wanted after F one had to come together in the midst of a death less than two years ago. Um, yeah, that's just just what the people want to hear, Toto. Um, like I'm stunned that Toto hasn't been blasted on the internet for this one because, like, people have been crapped on from a great height for less obnoxious shit than this. Um, like, well, just like, let's see when this interview came out. It came out on the Friday, so probably... Like, a quote on a Friday by a team principal, no one cares. If a driver but, said that, it would be a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, uh... Whew, yeah, oh, boy. And, like, just to add, uh, he was asked on whether F1 should add more street circuits to the calendar. He said, absolutely, in the most Toto Wolf way possible. I'm not gonna try to mimic his accent. Everyone knows how he's Do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Do it. Do no, it. Do absolutely, it. he said. And it's not <laughs> only about it's not only about watching the Millamilia as you can see cars go quite fast in the cities. The success of Formula E is being in town. The cars are not as spectacular, but they look fast in a city context, and you could see the attraction of Monte Carlo. So I think we should move, be moving away from airport like structures. It, it's not spectacular. 
I can sit in an F1 car at tracks like this, give me two weeks of training, I'll spin the car about a hundred times, I'll look at the data, and maybe I'll go quite fast because 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 maybe there is no risk. <sighs> like, like Toto, like there is one pretty open airfields-esque sort of racetrack on the calendar. It's Baku. That's about it. Like, one out of a 20-race calendar is not going to kill anybody, okay? I know that nobody likes Baku, and for good reason, but, like, like what car lots are we going to? Like, Istanbul Park was off the calendar years ago. <laughs> um, it's like, it's, it's I, just... I think, like, maybe he's mentioning Australia. That's literally part of that is a car lot. Like I guess you could say Montreal, but like, is he really going to be specifically bashing Canada? Everyone loves Canada. Ba- bash Canada! I dare him! I <laughs> double dare him! Like that's one of the most popular tracks we go to. Like I think he's forgetting that those technically are also street circuits. Exactly. Just uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like Toto, I hear what you're trying to say, but no. On every level, no, <laughs> just no. This doesn't work. Um, like it's unfounded. Like it, the the talk about the calendar, it's nothing like what you're suggesting. And like F one is for the better that we've moved away from ridiculously dangerous tracks and cars, and you know, and safety has moved on a hundredfold. Since. I mean, like, street yeah. circuits like Monaco themselves, Monaco has always been an outlier on the calendar. Even in the 1930s, Monaco was an outlier. Yeah, nothing's changed. Like, it's still, it's still, like, a, a, like a complete, like, red herring in terms of the context calendar. Even with Singapore and, and Baku on there now, it's still, like, the outlying, the, the street circuit diamond in the rough that... You know, a lot of fans still want to claim is really exciting. That dot 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 hint. There's a good reason why we're talking about the Indy 500 first. Um, <laughs> but Toto, no, just no. Stick to talking about how you're the underdogs instead. That's a lot more fun, and you know, to be fair, actually slightly less predictable. Um, <laughs> right. So. With that out of the way, we'll interject now with with RJ O'Connell talking about. The uh, E60 segment with PK Saban, one of the most intriguing people in all of North American sports. And after that, we'll probably play some music and then we'll talk about the Indy 500. It was pretty good. (laughs) Hello and good afternoon. Good day to you wherever you may be listening to this wonderful podcast on the week after the Indianapolis 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix, the second annual Motorsport 101 Day of Classics. My name is RJ O'Connell. If you are hearing this, this is all pre-recorded. This is all pre-recorded because um, my new employers want me to work Memorial Day. American Memorial Day, of course, a holiday that has um, kind of been uh, exploited to uncomfortable means in our post-9-11 ultra-warhawk American society that we now live in, which has gotten so exploitative to the point that it's uncomfortable and this coming from somebody with very little military background through anything other than family ties uh yeah it's it's kind of messed up but i mean hey i get paid time and a half to work in a movie theater 
so if you're hearing this, unfortunately, I'm not here with Dre and Ryan King. I am instead offering up my Keeping It 101 segment, which is on the E60 profile produced by ESPN of Nashville Predators star defenseman P.K. Subban. Oh, yes, they are in the Stanley Cup final uh, as of Monday, May 19th, 2017. Uh, this is the morning of the game of the first game of the 2017 Stanley Cup final, pitting my beloved Nashville Predators against the best team in the East, the defending champions of the National Hockey League, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Sidney Crosby is an amazing player, although he does eat mayonnaise straight out of the jar by the spoonful. He's wonderful, and also, I like him. I respect him, but I don't have to like him this series. But Crosby's not the important story. The important story is P.K. Subban. Um, his E60 profile narrated and written by Jeremy Shatt, longtime ESPN veteran, Um P.K. Subban had a pretty interesting journey. He's the son of second-generation immigrants from Jamaica. His mother was... His his mother told a wonderful story about how the first time she saw snow and ice in Canada, she almost cried because in Jamaica, because it's in the Caribbean, it, it gets hot, and it doesn't snow very often. That's why, that's why the story that was later adapted in Cool Runnings of the Jamaican bobsled team, that's why it was so ridiculous. Because it hardly snows in Jamaica. So when they move to Canada and when P.K. Subban starts to learn how to play ice hockey, uh, it's really neat. Um, They lived in a French-Canadian neighborhood, and they were all in on the Montreal Canadiens ever since P.K. Subban was a little child. Um, P.K., of course, drafted by the Montreal Canadiens in 2007 in the second round, uh, went on to do so many amazing things for the organization. He won the Norris Trophy in 2013. 2013 or 2014, I don't exactly remember, but I know that he won it. Um, He was the only all-black hockey player that has ever won the Norris Trophy, which is given to the most outstanding defenseman in the entire NHL. P.K. Subban is a four-time NHL All-Star, including this season. Um, And of course, it is investigative journalism. It does deal with the subject of of a black hockey player who is known for having... Lots of showmanship, self-confidence that rubs the sort of people that I would not want to associate with the wrong way. Um, And it goes in depth on how P.K. Subban was dealing with this kind of stuff since he was playing peewee hockey as a child. Um, And up until a recent run where P.K. Subban, as a Montreal Canadian, played his arch rivals Boston Bruins... Uh, won the game in double overtime and was subject to some really nasty racial abuse on Twitter and other outlets of social media, um, which which were just crass. And PK has handled it really well. Um, he's handled his role very well. He likes the spotlight. He likes being a showman. He likes showing character, and he's not apologetic or ashamed about it, which is wonderful. Also, PK Subban, amazing human being. The day that he signed his current eight mil, eight year, $72 million contract, which at the time made him the highest paid NHL defenseman ever. I believe this still makes him the highest paid NHL defenseman ever on like a year to year basis. Cause I know that uh, Shea Weber's contract was worth a lot more money over a long term period of time. 
The day the P.K. Subban signs his contract, he shortly thereafter, he pledges $10 million Canadian dollars to the Montreal Children's Hospital. That was the largest ever pledge by a Canadian athlete ever. And, of course, this past June, he was traded in a one-for-one deal for the aforementioned Shea Weber from the Montreal Canadiens to the Nashville Predators. Uh, P.K. said, you know, he, he wasn't given an explanation why he was traded. You know, they're... Montreal's general manager thought that he was a distraction because of his antics, which I'm sure are laced with a little bit more than just a dash of latent racism, um, because, you know, I'm like that. I, I kind of feel like that's the case, and I'm not alone in this. Um, P.K. Subban, still an awesome be- human being. Like, you could tell that when he walked into Nashville for the first couple days, when he was introduced to the team, like, he just carried himself as, like, an absolute rock star. And the, and the city of Nashville has embraced him. Like, Nashville has had some amazing players, but they have never had a guy who truly carries himself as, like, a superstar that transcends the team and the sport the way that they had with P.K. Subban. Um... And he's just loving every bit of being in Nashville. Like, he's embraced all the culture. The story itself starts with him singing Johnny Cash in a little dive bar in downtown Nashville on Broadway, right near the arena, in fact. Um, P.K. Subban still doing awesome work with the Montreal Children's Hospital even after the trade. And he has said that if Nashville wins the Cup, he is going to bring it back to Montreal for all the kids to see, which is wonderful. It is wonderful. Um... Coincidentally, the first year that they've had P.K. Subban, uh, Nashville became the first 16th seed. They had the worst regular season record of all the teams that made the playoffs this year to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. They are only the third team that ever made it as an 8th seed out of any conference to the Stanley Cup Final. And the last team that did that, the 2012 Los Angeles Kings, went on to win it. Uh, Not saying that's a coincidence, but just putting that out there. Um, Nashville had to beat the Chicago Blackhawks. They swept the Chicago Blackhawks. I, like, I still can't get over that. Like, I wanted it to happen because, uh, my respect for the Chicago Blackhawks organization has dwindled, and especially for a certain star right winger who I used to like until he was accused of DBSA charges, but we'll not get into that. They swept Chicago, then they beat the St. Louis Blues in six, and then they beat the Anaheim Ducks in six uh, to make it to their first Stanley Cup final. So now, in order to beat the man, as Ric Flair would say, Nashville and the Predators have to beat the man. That would be the Pittsburgh Penguins. And here's the interesting thing. P.K. Subban has not really been that much of an offensive dynamo in this playoff run. Like, he's had some points, but he's not really carried the team offensively. He hasn't really needed to because a whole bunch of dudes around him have really stepped up. But I've got a feeling that once it gets time, as P.K. Subban plays in his first Stanley Cup Finals, um, he's going to break out in a big, big way. Um, I am excited to see it. I'm going to be watching most of Game 1 from the bar across the concession stand where I work. Hopefully it's going to be a good series. You know, my head sometimes thinks that, like, eh... Maybe Pittsburgh will just sweep them or the one out in five and it won't be convincing. But, you know, now that they're here, I came into the playoffs thinking like, okay, if they get this far, no matter what happens from here on out, it's a cess. But now that they're here and now that I've seen a wonderful piece about P.K. Subban's rise to NHL superstardom 
and all the hardships that he's had to do, endure along the way. Yeah, my heart says I want him to win the whole thing. I hope they do. It may be in seven agonizingly frustrating and stressful games and like four of them will go into overtime and two of them will go into triple overtime. But my heart wants me, wants them to win, win the dang thing. You just got to win the dang thing. Um, so if you haven't seen it, it is showing on various reruns of East 60. Uh, it came on this past Sunday during the day of classics. I made sure to DVR. It's a phenomenal piece. Um, go seek it out and watch it if you can. I believe it is on the Watch ESPN service uh, on your smartphones and on their online streaming service on desktop PCs as well. Um, that is pretty much it. P.K. Subin is awesome. The Nashville Predators are awesome. And they are both even more awesome for being together in this partnership. Go Preds. I hope we kick some major ass. Ladies and gentlemen, we had the most on-brand Indy 500 of all time. Like, the maximum on-brandedness was achieved here. The 101st run of the Indianapolis 500. And King, apparently a meme actually won the dog race. (laughs) A a meme in only the context of the show. (laughs) It's a beautiful, glorious meme. But sadly, I have to sadly announce that not now Sato is officially dead. Like, we can't possibly call him it now. He's won the biggest race in all of motors. He won the biggest race in all of motorsport in probably the edition of the race that was most a crash fest. Like, the most that you would, like, if, if there was a race for Sato to cr- crash out of, you would, you would expect it to be this one. Exactly. And... Yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk about it more in a minute. But gosh, yeah, like there was a, a very high rate of attrition um, in this Indy 500, and the guy that came out on top was Takuma Sato. That phrase is now dead. <laughs> I, we we can't possibly use this again. Um, like that I don't know, I don't know. Detroit's next week. We got, we got to wait and see. We got to wait and see. Okay, we're putting this announcement on hold. Um, <laughs> We'll give it a week. Um, if he gets through Detroit, we, we may have to cancel it. Um, but uh, my word, Takuma Sato becoming the first Japanese driver to ever win the Indianapolis 500. I think he, I think as well, King, he's the first winner over the age of 40 since Eddie Cheever, I want to say. Yes, first winner over the age of 40 since Eddie Cheever, who was on commentary. <laughs> It was on commentary amazing. He's like, anyone's been like, damn it. No, no, he was like, don't mention that. He was like trying to hide the fact that he won at over the age of 40. Because, he won- because let's let's do the math. Eddie Cheever won the Indianapolis 500, let's see, in, 19, in 1998. Oh, God. Yeah, he didn't want anyone to realize that he was 59 years old. <laughs> He's 60 this year. Oh, man. Um... Jesus. Uh, but, I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, Sato was running up the front very much so early on. 
Um, he suffered a, a bad pit stop. I think, it, I think it was a wheel nut that, um, that was out of place during the pit stop when that sent Sato back down the field on pit road. But he came back into play later on with the, uh, with the, the late cautions we'll get into in a minute. But, uh, King, what, what a final fight between him and Helio Castroneves at the end. <laughs> oh, God. It was him and Helio. It looked like Elio was getting himself in position to, you know, do the traditional, I'm going to overtake you on either the last lap or the penultimate lap. But no, Sato found the speed and was able to pull out a big enough gap for Elio not to be able to attack him. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, again, it looked like like Elio was setting it up and setting it up and setting it up, but the attack never came. Like, yeah. it, it, it just didn't, like, Tedio just didn't have the outright pace, even under draft, to be able to, to take Takuma. And it's a shame because Helio pulled off two unbelievable passes in the final 10 laps to get past Ed Jones and Max Chilton, who we'll get onto in a minute. But, like, King, you saw those passes, like, two spectacular around the outside moves to get up into second place like that. I mean, yeah, well... like, Helio is still an animal. Let's, let's make it clear. <laughs> Yeah, Sato, uh, like, I I don't know how Sato was able to pull out pull out the win because Elio was on a mission and he was on he Elio was on the road to not only immortality but to become a bona fide living legend. Yeah, like only three men have won the five hundred four times, and Helio has been trying since two thousand and ten to get that four five hundred because his last win in the five hundred win was two thousand and nine. So this was his eighth attempt since then to try and get it, and this is the closest he's come since then. Yeah, um, and like, like it may seem uh, almost you know inconsequential, but Elio would have been. Well, he still could be. He could still be the the first international driver to get four Indianapolis 500 wins. Every the three other guys who have four wins are Americans. It's a very good point. Yeah, just two tenths of a second in it over the line. That's how close Helio was to basically him and IndyCar immortality to to be to be part of the four 500 wins club. Um, like and the fact that Helio is like. like it's worth mentioning as well, King, that not only did uh, Chil- like did Helio lose a part of his rear wing in a aforementioned ridiculous accident we'll get to later on, but the fact that Penske was pretty much nowhere all for- all, like all throughout the month of May, Penske have looked like they've been on the back foot. Like right at the end, Helio comes into play. Uh, wow, just a just a phenomenal job from the forty-two-year-old. Yes, Elio knows what he's doing around this place. He really does, and he's still the nicest man in the world because, like, like he was out of the car, and then like two minutes later, he's being interviewed by by the ABC crew, and there he is, still smiling, still happy, still joking. Like, I want I want to give Elio a hug. He's like seems like the nicest man alive. I'm like, I, I I can't promise that I would be that happy and jovial if I was this close. To winning the 500, but um, that's just the sort of man that Helio is. God bless him. Um, if we were all that positive about life, the world would be a better place. <laughs> yeah. Um, God bless him. But uh, God, like little Takuma, like you know what was really cool about that win is one of the first guys to congratulate him was Dario Franchitti. <laughs> that was that was so cool. 
because we all we all know how Sato had that very very big near miss in 2012 where he tried going down the inside at Ario on I think it was the penultimate lap and it didn't work out and Sato was just so close to glory but obviously ended up being an awful awful mistake that cost him a shot at the 500 but uh that cost him and Dario a shot at the 500 yeah exactly exactly um gosh um so it was nice to see that Dario, you know, took the whole thing in good grace. I think he, I think he posted a really funny tweet after the race finished. Let me find it. Uh, yeah, there it is. Um, congratulations to Kuma Sato on winning the big one. You drove a fabulous race, and no one had to give you more room this year. <laughs> That's our Dario, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> uh, fantastic stuff. But again, like Takuma, fantastic stuff, and. It's amazing as well because that means Andretti has now won three of the last four 500s, despite the fact that if you actually take Sato away, this did not go well for Andretti <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, as, as, as we said off air, like King said, like, there are six bullets in the chamber and only one of them really hit. <laughs> and yeah, you know, any one of them really hit. But thankfully, they only needed the one that mattered, and that was Sato at the top. More on that later, but uh, props to Sato. Castro Neves putting up a fantastic fight in second place, in third, and continuing his fantastic rookie season. Ed Jones, ladies and gentlemen, he was right there on the lead on the lead fight in case anything had gone wrong between Takuma and Helio. Ed Jones was right there, King, but it, his second half of the race was was stunning. Yeah, just absolutely stunning from Ed Jones. It. At moments, it looked like Ed Jones could have won it as well. Absolutely. He was right in the mix. He was making moves, trying to get to the front. And this is a guy that had to have his rear wing changed early on in the race. So he had to he had two extra pit stops compared to, to, to Kuma Sato, who won it in the end, which kind of says it all, really. The only, re- <clears throat> the only reason Ed Jones wasn't in contention the last couple laps, he damaged the most important aerodynamic device on the car, the ground effect floor. Oh, god damn it, Ed! Uh, <laughs> so unlucky, but still an incredible effort and a and a very very well earned ninety three points for Ed Jones for finishing for finishing in third, which now puts him spoiler alert ninth in the championship overall. Ed Jones is in the top ten overall. Tremendous rookie season Ed Jones is having so far. That was the cherry on top. Yep. Um, and right behind him, representing Great Britain and St George. Um, Max Chilton? Um, <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> yes, shout out to Alex Lynn, the only Max Chilton fan I know. Um, Maximum Chilton, ladies and gentlemen, led more laps than any other man. Uh, 50 of the 200 laps were led by Max Chilton. And, and King, he really came into play at the end, given the alternative fuel strategies and whatnot, but Chilton was up there doing the thing. Yeah, he was up there doing the thing. Oh, damn. It's... If he didn't have to come in, he probably could have won it. He was right in the mix there. Had, had, had to come in towards the end. But again, another phenomenal effort from Chilton there. He looked very comfortable right up, up, up the front lead in there as as well. And oh, his best ever IndyCar finish was seventh going into this one. So he'll, I think he'll very gladly take a fourth um, for Chip Ganassi racing. And again, yeah, leading Chip car as well, which is quite an achievement given the experience that's that's in that team. Um, a lot of big hitters in there, and the guy that came out on top was Max Chilton. Whew. 
What a surprise. Um, we'll, we'll cover the rest of the, of the grid in a minute, but, uh, King, we've got to talk about that accident. Um, for those guys that you've probably already seen this by now, given it went, it went viral very quickly. I mean, Scott Dixon was like the number two trending topic in the UK, um, at one point, given this accident. But, uh, picture the scene. Like, Hunter Ray is lapping, like he was leading the race at the time, um, was, was lapping Jay Howard for the fourth time already in the early going. Howard, really struggling out there um, with his car. Um, now, Howard kind of sort of blamed Hunter Ray for this. I can't really see it, to be honest with you. But Howard being offline, he kind—he never really recovered. He lost control of the car. He banged into the outside barrier. He bounces back the other way. And Scott Dixon, who, who was in the mix, he led multiple laps at the start of the race. And the pre-race bookies' favourite um, was absolutely collected um, underneath that, and basically his car was flung maybe fifty feet in the air, as well fifty feet, like probably forwards, and then maybe twenty feet in the air itself. Um, horrific looking accidents. Holy shit! It, I said it during the hangout. I will say it again here: one of the worst looking accidents I've ever seen in any yeah. form of motorsports. Yeah. Um, I think- I saw a tweet, I don't remember by who, but somebody was like, oh, you think Sebastian Bourdais had the worst accident this month? Hold my Taco Bell. Tony Dezino, <laughs> who luckily after finding out that uh, that Scott was okay, tweeted, yeah, hold my Taco Bell. Um, oh, Dixon just... He, it's, there's no other way of describing it. He gets catapulted into the catch fence. There's, like he, he, he's, he's flying to the fence, he's riding across the barrier... And, and the entire back of the car has been ripped off. Yeah, I, as he's it, it wasn't even like riding across. He came down right on top of the barrier on the on the side pod, and his side pod just like disintegrated. The whole thing came apart. Um, he, he's he's probably like a hundred feet away from where his the initial contact was. Yeah, the entire Amazing. the entire <laughs> rear axle, including the differential and both rear tires, just breaks off the car and goes. Sl- slams into the outside wall and turn two. Gone. Completely gone. Wrecked. Destroyed. Like the whole rear of the car is pretty much gone at this point. Scott Dixon walks out of the car under his own power. How? <laughs> <laughs> Gets out, walks away. <laughs> Gets out, walks away. Apparently he came back in a walking boot later on, so he might, he might have damaged his, one of his feet um, in that one slightly. But the fact that Dixon was able to get out of the car under his own power after an accident that ridiculous, my God, um, these, these, like, Dallara have made one hell of a race car if we're able to get out of that one unscathed. Um, yep, and because of that accident, one buddy Lazier did not finish in last place. Yay for Buddy! Um, <laughs> more on that in a bit as well, but, uh, oh my God, an incredible, uh, an incredible, horrifying, disastrous looking accident. But again, luckily, um, both Jay Howard and Scott Dixon were okay. Um, Dixon was a little bit salty about it, as, as mentioned on Twitter uh, earlier on. But uh, yeah, understandably why. But uh, Dixon, very, very unlucky to be collected like that. He, he, he looked like he had a race car that was capable of challenging for the win. It was a real shame. Um, and a lot of betting tips were probably torn up at that one as well, because Dixon was right up there as favourite or second favourite pretty Dixon much the entire month. was on my fantasy team! <laughs> it was in mine too. You, like, you don't get to grieve on this one. It was in my team as well. You shut your mouth. 
But um, yeah, as a result of that one, that brought out a red flag where they had to clear up a lot of the damage um, regarding that one. But yeah, yeah, thankfully Scott Dixon and Jay Howard both okay. Um, we've we've danced around this long enough, King. I think we've got to talk about some Spanish guy. Um, I, I hear Fernando Alonso was doing quite well. Um, yeah, we've got to talk about Fernando, guys. And um, yeah, the hype was real. Fernando was really, really fantastically good. Um, which is no surprise to me whatsoever because he's Fernando freaking Alonso. But we saw it with our own eyes, King. Like, the man came to party. Yeah, led 27 laps, was spectacular in the lead and outside of it. Yeah, pulled off some... Uh, I think the one I was really impressed with, the one where he goes around the side of turn one on J.R. Hildebrand, who has got many an oval belt. Um, and one of the better oval drivers in the field, and he just goes around the outside like it's no big deal. Fernando, the man is fearless. He is truly fearless, and he was in contention pretty much the entire way through. I don't think he was ever really lower than outside of the top eight or nine, really, all the way through. As King mentioned, led 27 laps, and just when you thought Honda was going to give him a reliable car... 20 to go, and the entire Honda engine blows up, and Alonso is out, and we are all very sad. Uh, and like, I mean, and that part of part of it, we kind of saw it coming because before his Honda engine blew up, uh, Ryan Hunter Ray's engine blew up, former winner, yeah. and also uh, Charlie Kimball's engine Charlie also Kimball. blew up. That's like when Kimball's engine blew up, I was like, okay, something's up, something could happen. Yeah, and again, we were hoping it wasn't going to happen, but you see the car smoking down the home straight. Alonso's pulled off to the side, and down it went. Just 20 laps from the finish, uh, Alonso's Alonso's car goes, and everybody is now writing angry emails to Honda's engine department as we speak. Um, if, if you're sending the letter, good luck. Um, there's going to be a backdated on that, so you'll, they'll probably read it sometime around 2020. Um <laughs> But, uh, King, like, even even with the obviously disappointing result, like, no matter which way you slice it, Fernando was magnificent. <laughs> like, like he, he, he delivered on, on, on every aspect. And, yeah, he was comfortable up the front. He was comfortable in the pack. He was towing. He, like, the greatest compliment I can pay is that Alonso looks like he'd been doing this 15 years already. Like, he looked like Helio was out there. Like, if, if you would put another guy in there who was an IndyCar veteran in the 29 car and changed the packaging, you, you'd think it was another guy, not a rookie. And it just shows, goes to show you that, that, you know, Fernando is truly a magnificent driver who's had to work his ass off to get to this point. And it's a shame because Andretti threw literally everything at, at Fernando's effort and it didn't really work out, to say the least. Um, kind of says it all, um, King, that when Zach Brown was um, talking about Alonso in the post-race press conference, he thanked, you know, Andretti. He thanked McLaren. He thanked everybody in Indianapolis. They didn't thank Honda. Uh, Honda wasn't mentioned in the uh, in the appreciations, uh, which again, Honda don't care because Honda won. <laughs> which is funny because, like, for all the talk about criticizing Honda, crap, and Honda isn't that. Honda just won the Indy Five Hundred. Just not the Honda you were hoping for, huh? Um, which is kind of funny in the same, it's kind of ironic in the same sense, really. But as you mentioned, Fernando, unfortunate. But, you know, 
I mean, he, it was mentioned as well, 300,000 Indianapolis fans gave him a standing ovation when he got out of the car, which kind of says it all. Like, it was it was a very cool moment, even if even in the uh, the lowest moments of Alonso's month of May. Um, still, an, an, an incredible performance. And, you know, he's already promised he'll, he'll be back at some point. So I don't think this will be the last we'll see of Fernando Alonso at Indianapolis. And just overall, King, I think his overall impact um, for for IndyCar, for motorsport in general, I think has been nothing short of fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to have a rookie year better than what Alonso had without winning the race. Yeah. And he had, a, he had a real, real chance of doing that. Like This is no... We're not exaggerating this because it's Fernando. He had a legitimate shot. Um, and was, again, in contention pretty much the entire way through until until a couple of the restarts towards the end, and then, yeah, then the engine conked out. Same for Ryan Hunter-Ray, who was having a fantastic race. Again, like, Hunter-Ray's awful luck at Indianapolis since he won it in 2014 continues. He had a blown engine from the lead, may I add. Um, His engine goes, and it's it's another engine problem for Hunter-Ray this season. Honda, um, basically... But, yeah, Andretti had six bullets in the gun, and the best they could do was, oh, yeah, they had Sato winning. Kind of helps. But uh, Alexander Rossi was there in seventh place. Well, another guy that was in the mix pretty much all the way through, led 23 laps. Um, But, yeah, Rossi was in seventh in the end, and Marco Andretti was eighth. Kind of like a surprise eighth, really, because Andretti was never really in contention, but he was just there. Like, they're just dodging accidents, I guess. Uh, sometimes can pay off for you. Uh, more on that in a bit. But uh, one of the big game changes later on in the race, King, was a five-car wreck um, with, I think, of about 25 or so to go. Um, I, like, I'm trying, like, it, how it started was that was that Scott Davidson, who was filling in for Sebastian Bourdais, get more soon, um, he's trying to go around the outside of Oriel Servia, and I think... Davison just turns in a bit too early on, on Servia, clips the front of his car. They both spin out, and Will Power trying to dodge the accident. He spins out. He collects James Hinchcliffe, and Newgarden got caught in the crossfire as well. So just like that, like like nearly a quarter of the field that was left <laughs> was out in one enormous crash. Um, a real shame because Davison was running like in the top five uh, when that happened. He was really, really coming to play late on after having to change a front wing earlier in the race as well. So, yeah, King, a real shame for Davison, wasn't it? Yeah, he was truly a super sub out there. Like, he was heading towards a very solid finish for someone who basically only drove that car for less than a week. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant job from Davison, and just, uh, <laughs> just, just fantastic stuff all all around. Um, yeah, great performance from him. It's worth mentioning as well um, that uh, for for TV ratings in the UK, the the Indy 500 had a peak audience of over two hundred thousand. It was about eight thirty at night. Um, they they had peaked at over 200,000 viewers. I think it was an average of 130 uh, over over the course of the broadcast, which was, again, a, a good three-and-a-half, four-hour broadcast. Um, it's a shame because I, I wasn't a particular fan of BT's coverage on this race because on this one, they were playing the adverts where they normally don't when they broadcast IndyCar and BT Sport. They normally just have 
British guys talk over the race, which is still ongoing when the American coverage goes to commercial. Um, yeah, and apparently is... they missed, like, most of the pre-race ceremony that Indianapolis is known for. We had to get the Susie, we had to get the Susie Perry punditry in. It's very important. <laughs> yeah, they had Susie Perry, Mike Conway, and some journalist on there as their front three, basically, in the studio for it. And I don't want to sound too critical here, but Susie Perry had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> it's it's just, it, which is just kind of awful. And then when Dixon had his big accident, she says a line to Mike Conway or something along the lines of, did that bring back memories for you? And I'm like, Susie, no. <laughs> no, Susie. Like, Conway had an enormous wreck in 2010, I think it was. And that was like part of the pre-race coverage. And then they're reminding him of that. Uh no, Susie. No. Just, just no. Like that crash ended Conway's oval career. Like that's just completely insensitive, which is a shame. But again, like in context, that Indy 500 coverage had a one thousand, a near one thousand percent increase in viewership compared to the previous year. Suck it, Jenna Fryer. Um, <laughs> to say the and least. And yes, <laughs> also, the American ratings were up as well. Mm-hmm. They had a rating of 3.8, which is about uh, 5.8 million viewers, with a peak during the half hour between 3 and 3.30, where they peaked around a 4.4, which is 6.8 million people watching that half hour of coverage. Yeah, um, more people in Spain watched the Indy 500 yesterday on linear TV than the. That's just come out through the through the pipeline as well. So more people more in Spain. Than the will... Monaco. <laughs> yeah, more people in Spain were watching Fernando in the 500 than watching the Monaco Grand Prix. Sorry, Carlos. <laughs> Sorry, Carlos. Your fan base isn't quite there yet. Keep, keep working on it, mate. Keep working on it. Um... But, uh, yeah, um, overall, great to see that the Alonso impact did have. I mean, I saw a lot of first-time viewers on Twitter. Shout-out to guys like Arava as well that was watching, and, you know, he had a great reaction video. He seemed to really enjoy it. Same with TM at Marlock, the, the guys that were first-time viewers. They seemed to really enjoy the spectacle, which is great to see. Like, that's, that's, that's good news for everybody. And, yeah, I just hope we can get more cool motorsport crossovers in the, in the near future. Here's hoping. Um, like... King, I pre-ordered, I pre-ordered Alonso's helmet as well. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to put it on my desk. It's going to be fantastic. So, full rundown of the 500 itself and the result. I'm going to run this down. Give me a minute. Now Sato wins the Indianapolis 500. See? See? We changed the catchphrase already. Um, good for Takuma. He wins it again. Helio Nevis in second, just two temps behind. Um, very, very close. Unlucky Helio, but you still have King. Uh, Ed Jones. He didn't mention Helio's no, I, hair. I know, I know he has great hair. I know he has great hair, but Ed Jones is third. <laughs> King just ruining everything. <laughs> so disappointing. Yeah, Ed Jones in third again. Brilliant job from him. Max Chilton in fourth. Tony Kanan who led 22 laps at the early going, finished in fifth in the end, ahead of Juan Pablo Montoya in sixth. Well, Monty led the lap as well. Monty still in there, still still getting still getting in the mix there in sixth place, ahead of Alex Rossi, last year's winner, in seventh, yeah, not he, being able to do the back-to-back. He had a fantastic race. He was fantastic. He was great. He was in. He led 23 laps. Was, was, again, he was pretty much first or second for a good half of that race. He was right up there all the way through. Rossi... 
like he, we, we, a lot has been made of of how he won it last year, but his pace was frighteningly legitimate this year. Fantastic all month. Um, Rossi deserves a lot of praise. Like he's here to stay, folks. And F one's loss is IndyCar's gain for sure. Um, Alex Rossi, superb stuff from him. Um, Snapple man himself, Marco Andretti, in a, a very quiet eighth place in the end. There, not much going on from him. Yeah, but great, but not another good, but not great five hundred from Marco Andretti. The story of Marco Andretti since two thousand six, <laughs> pretty much. Big shout out to Gabby Chavez for the Harden race ninth, his first race in over a year, and Chavez comes back and puts it in the top ten for a brand new team. Yeah, Brilliant job from Gabby team. Chavez. Best yeah, of best the rookie cars. Yeah, well done, Gabby Chavez. Superb performance. Somebody give him a call for the rest of the ovals. Jesus, the man could drive. Um, Carlos Munoz rounding off the top 10 if, for AJ Foyt there. I don't think Munoz ever really had the car this year. He, he, again, like going for Mandretti has really hit him hard, but Munoz is still so good at the 500. It's, it's ridiculous. A top 10 result in that car. Um, great drive from Carlos Munoz. Great drive. Um, Uncle Ed, Ed Carpenter in 11th, uh, was unfortunate to, to damage his front wing in the later stages. Again, he was running up there as well in the early going. They had five laps. Ed Carpenter in 11th. Graham Rahal in 12th. Still no 500 success like his old man, unfortunately. Uh, Michaela Lotion in 13th, who had half his side pod gone yeah. by, the, by, by three-quarter distance. Um Fixed with duct tape, because duct tape solves every problem in life, kids. Yeah. Like, if, if you're young listening to this show, let it, let it be known that duct tape fixes everything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, well done, Michael Ocean in 13th. Simon Pagano, the uh, points leader going into the 500 weekend in 14th. Another sadly mediocre run for, for the Frenchman. Sonic the Hedgehog himself, Sebastian Saavedra, in 15th place. Good effort for him as well. Yeah, great, great first 500 for you, Coast Racing. Yeah, we'll take that one every time. J.I. Hildebrand, 16th place. Pippa Man in 17th. I think that's the best finish here uh, at, at the Indianapolis 500. Yeah, so well done to Pippa Man. It's like, I feel uh, bad for J.R., though. J.R. was running well until he had to, you know, serve a penalty during the closing stages. Yeah, that's a shame because he was running in the leading group as well. That's a, a bummer for J.R., who was, again, running very well indeed. Spigot himself, Spencer Piggott in 18th place. Good effort for me again. Jinko's 15th and 18th. They'll gladly take that for their first time out. I think that's a very solid result for them. Then we get into the accidents. Like, Joseph Newgarden was deemed as a runner. He is the last of the running cars, basically. Um, in 19th place, he was collected, as mentioned, in that late incident. So he was 19th ahead of James Davison in 20th. Oriel Servia, 21st. James Hinchcliffe, who was taken out by Will Power, who is now on my shit list, in 22nd and 23rd, respectively. Um, Fernando Alonso, as mentioned, the engine failure puts him in 24th. 47 points, though, which is... I, I wonder if we'll get that with McLaren Honda this year. Probably oh not. Um, Charlie Kimball in 25th place. Um, Zach Veach, his good first effort from him, unfortunately, he's, he had an engine failure as well, sadly, in 26th place. Brackets, curse you, AJ Foyt. Um, Ryan Hunter Ray, 27th, as mentioned, his engine also failed. As did Sage Karam in 28th place, our trash bag homeboy son. His oh uh, <laughs> battery died. Oh my god. The battery died of all things. He went full Connor Daly. His, his, his alternator died. I mean, that is just awful luck. 
Sage Karen in 28th. Um, Buddy Lazier, not at the not at the back, in 29th. For those asking, he is okay. He did have to go to hospital for suffering a bit of uh, chest discomfort after he spun out and hit the wall. But um, luckily, Buddy is okay. Good to hear. He made the top 30, so good for him. Um, Connor Daly in 30th, who lost it. Um, when Charlie Kimball overtook yeah. him and uh, Brennan was very upset to say the least on on that one and uh, our friend of the show Elizabeth Worth was drinking wine out of a box um, upon upon hearing the news and I think something along the lines of I don't want to be a Connor Daly fan anymore yes, because uh, Connor Daly has now gone 0 for 3 for Indy 500 finishes in 3 Indy 500s in his career is yet to finish the race sad face um, Jack Harvey uh, didn't finish. I mean, he had a separate incident um, when the Dixon crash happened in twenty in thirty first place, and then, as mentioned earlier, Dixon thirty second and Howard thirty third and last now, after those. Incidents. The most interesting part of this five hundred is the manufacturer's standing. Where Go on. Honda is leading Chevrolet by a single point. They overtook Chevy wow. to take the lead by a single point. That's interesting, but isn't Chevy going to get like a bunch of like finished engine bonus points? I want. Oh, that, Honda's that, not that includes get... that. That includes that. Oh, okay. Wow. So Honda's in the lead now. I wonder why. <laughs> because four of the top five cars were Hondas. Yep. Kinda says it all, really. Um, looking at the overall championship. Helio Castroneves now leads the IndyCar Championship. So, like, when God closes the door, he opens a window, clearly, because now Pagano has an 11-point lead in the championship standings. Mr. Consistency himself and a second of the 500 definitely helps. Yeah, he Um, can finally get a national championship crown to his name for the first time ever. Would be nice. Wouldn't be a bad bad runner-up prize. Um, interestingly, there is now a three-way tie for second place between Simon Pagano, Takuma Sato, obviously on the back of a 134-point boost for winning the 500, and Scott Dixon. So they're now, there's now a three-way tie for second. Between three then, different teams. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. One Penske, one Andretti, and one Chip, uh, which is nuts. So a big three-way tie for second. Then in fifth place, Alex Rossi. Again, 190 points now in fifth place. He's two points ahead of Tony Kanaan, who refuses to go away in, in sixth place of 188 points. Then you have a, a tie for seventh between Will Power, 186, and the 2015 champion, and Joseph Newgarden in with 186 points. And then Ed Jones, just one point behind them on 185, believe it or not. He's 15 points ahead of a tie for 10th between James Hinchcliffe and Max Chilton. James Hinchcliffe breaking the tie on having that one race win at Long Beach. So, yeah, the, the points are all over all over the place. There's some fun observations in there to point out as well. Like, for example, um, Montoya now has more points than Quinnadaly has this season. Just, <laughs> just, just let that sink in. Just let that sink in. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. That uh, yeah, Monty has five more points than Connor Daly does in the championship. Sad face. Thank God and, Alonso didn't finish the race because he would have had more points as well. Yeah, no kidding. Very very sad face um, to say the least. Um, like I said, I wonder if McLaren as a team will get to forty seven points this year. <laughs> Probably not. And shout out to, to a friend of the show Niran who put out a banger of a tweet that said. 
Only McLaren Honda could find it a way to have free retirements on a single weekend. Um, <laughs> um, so we will leave you with RJ's thoughts on the Indy 500 after all of that. And when we come back, we'll talk about the F1 race at Monaco. Because apparently there was an F1 race too. Who knew? Who, buddy? Takuma Sato, a driver who I thought was washed up for the last three years. A driver who I thought probably was one of the most uninspired signings of the offseason in what was basically a trade for Carlos Munoz from AJ4 Enterprises to Andretti Autosport, kind of motivated by the fact that Sato is a Honda guy and Andretti needed some funding from a Honda guy to keep that fourth car afloat. Yeah, it's Akuma Sato, the 40-year-old washed-up driver who really had one stretch of amazing results and didn't do anything afterwards. Yeah, Takuma Sato just won the 101st Indianapolis 500. And if he decides, while we're recording and producing this episode, to just retire right now as the 101st Indianapolis 500 champion, the first Japanese driver to win this race, and only the second Japanese driver to ever win any of the three legs of the Motorsports Triple Crown, he goes into the record books as one of the greatest Japanese racing drivers ever. I mean, you got to understand that motorsport in Japan has been a thing now for about 50 years, like after the after the Second World War, war World War, um, and all the rebuilding that it had to take, the post-war economic miracle that happened in Japan. Uh, it really got started in the 60s, and there have not been a lot of Japanese drivers, despite the fact that they've been running for a while. Um, not a lot of them have had success on the international level. You may recall back in 1995, Masanori Sekia, Toyota racing legend, won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in a McLaren, which had to feel bad for for Toyota, considering that as of May 2017, Toyota have never won Le Mans. Takuma Sato won it in a Honda-powered car. And how awesome must that feel for Honda when you consider the unrelenting faith that the manufacturer has put behind this guy? Remember, Takuma Sato was the dude when he was forced out of his contract with British American Racing, soon to become the Honda Factory F1 team. Honda just decided at the 11th hour to start up a whole new Formula One team and make him the centerpiece of it. And for at least one race in 2007, you will remember the one, the Canadian Grand Prix, where he upstaged a certain Fernando Alonso. Things were really good for the team known as Super Guri, affectionately known as Super Best Friends. Y'all, Takuma Sato won the Indianapolis 500. Um, and if you want to just experience joy in your day, go look up the Gower Sports broadcast of the final lap and the final corner as play-by-play announcer Haro Murata loses his fucking mind as Takuma Sato crosses the bricks and takes the win, as he absolutely should have, because this is huge for Japan, a country that has had a lot of really great drivers, a lot of great drivers who never got a fair shot at the international scene. Takuma Sato is a rarity and that he's raced at the top of Formula One, and that he's one of only three Japanese drivers to ever stand on Formula One World Championship podium, uh, that he has been in IndyCar 
this long. This is his eighth attempt to run this race, and this is his eighth season. He's been around a while. Um, so he is a rarity in that. And that man, you know, he lives by the motto of no attack, no chance. And in this race, we saw a much more tempered Takuma Sato. Um, you may remember his last lap pass that was a bit mistimed in 2012. That would have easily won him the race if he had just waited a corner or another two quarters. But Sato held off one of the best. He held off Elio Castroneves going for his fourth victory, charging his way through the field. He won the darn thing, and I'm so happy for Takuma Sato. Like, gosh, it, it rivals seeing Juan Pablo Matoya win two years ago. It rivals seeing Alexander Rossi win. I feel great about seeing Takuma Sato win this race after all that he's been through the last couple of years. He can retire now, and he'll forever be a legend. And if he does nothing else from here on out in IndyCar, if the rest of the season just goes to shambles, he's always going to have his face on the Borg Warner Trophy as a former winner of the greatest spectacle in racing, the biggest single prize in motorsports. Nobody can take that away from him. He beats some of the best, fair and square. And that includes Fernando Alonso, who was just the story of the Indianapolis 500. Um, he brought international attention the likes of which we have not seen since 1995, since before the split that created the Indy Racing League. He was absolutely 100% on board with all the medias, with all the autograph signings. Um, he was on board with the task of coming in as a rookie and just taking it slow and steady with a crash course, just trying to get the most laps that he could out of his rookie orientation training. And then he started to turn up the wick. And for a while, I thought Fernando Alonso was actually going to win this thing. It didn't quite turn out that way because Honda engine just expired with 20 to go. He wasn't the only one to suffer the same fate. Ryan Hutteray also had a tremendous car during the race. And yeah, his engine also let go. So it's kind of crazy to think that going into this last week before the 500, we were all just like, man... Isn't it awesome that Fernando Alonso has a reliable Honda engine that's fast and competitive? It sure was fast, sure was competitive, but reliable it proved not to be over a 500-mile stretch. Granted, that is a bit misleading when four of the top five finishers were Honda-powered, but in this case, it was kind of a letdown that of the Honda engines that had to let go, it just happened to be Alonso's, the driver who really bought, brought in a international interest in this race, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long, long time. And Fernando Alonso says he will be back. I say this as a man who has been a fan of Fernando Alonso's for 15 years. I'm probably the only person on this show that goes super, super hard for Fernando Alonso. I want to see him back next year. I want to see him back for as many, many years to come as his body and his mind will let him do it because I have a feeling that Fernando Alonso can win in Indianapolis 500, and I think he can win the Triple Crown of Motorsport if given the right opportunity to do so. Will he still be at McLaren next year, and will they let him have that opportunity once again? Hopefully so. I certainly hope so because Fernando Alonso at Indy was a delight, and I think he changed a lot of people's perception of him, um, which is really, really awesome to see. Fernando Alonso was one of the star performers of this month. Y'all, let's talk about Scott Ditson, because Scott Ditson is a lucky man. 
He probably should not have survived that wreck that he had on lap 56 when he ramped over the top of Jay Howard's car and the side of the car just landed right on top of the inside retaining wall and into the catch fencing. That was one of the scariest accidents that I've seen where every party walked away seemingly uninjured. Scott Ditson did have to come back to the arena in a walking boot, but you know what? I have to commend Dallara for building the strongest, safest indie car that we have ever seen. You know, in a in, at a previous time, I used to give IndyCar, the Indy Racing League, whatever guys, uh, just a bunch of shit for being dangerously and unnecessarily safe after a bunch of airborne and terrible crashes. Um, maybe it was part of the community I was running with at the time, but you know, it, the Indy 500 is an inherently dangerous race by its nature. It's one of the fastest events. You are constantly running at speeds of over 200 miles per hour for 500 miles straight. If something goes bad, bad things are going to happen. And Scott Nixon had probably the second most horrific crash, apart from Sebastian Borzé's accident that will see him out for the rest of the season. Uh... And Dixon walked away. His car was split in half. He had gone upside down, landing on top of the inside retaining wall. And he flew over the top of Elio Castroneves' car. Elio drove underneath an airborne car. And the crazy thing is that might not even be the second most frightening instance where a car has driven underneath another car that is wrecked in the history of this race that I've been alive. Uh, so for Scott Disson to walk away from that was really outstanding. It's great to see everybody involved with that was all right as well. Elio Castroneves finishing just second. You know, I, you know, I wouldn't have been too upset to see Elio Castroneves join the group of AJ Foyt, Rick Mears, and Al Lenzer Sr. as the first international four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500. He came so close. He battled through so much from losing a rear winglet in that aforementioned incident with Ditson, he had to overcome a drive-through penalty earlier in the race, um, and he still charged his way back on an alternate strategy that eventually would have paid off, but Takuma Sato just held him off. Um, man, you know, sometimes I wonder if that was maybe Elio's last shot to win it because he's 42 years old. He's still driving at the top of his game, but you have to wonder... Was that the last we'll see of Elio Castroneves as a driver who can compete for the title? But it's not all bad because by finishing second, he takes the points lead, and that still gives him a chance to do the one thing that he still hasn't done, and that is win a national championship. If Elio Castroneves never wins an IndyCar title, he will be the greatest driver that has ever stepped foot into American Open Real Racing that has never won a national title of his own. Sometimes we argue whether or not it's more important to win a whole bunch of titles and not the Indy 500 or vice versa. I think for Elio, it would be awesome to see him finally win that elusive first championship. We'll see as the season goes on. Finishing behind him, Ed Jones, British-born, from the Emirates, and Matt Chilton. Golly, they were good. Ed Jones had to become the leader of that team overnight. And by goodness, he did it. Ed Jones was phenomenal all month long. This is a driver who's had to battle back from career-threatening back injuries in Formula 3 to going through Indy Lights, being the only rookie to race full-time this season. And 
when Sebastian Bourdais, their team leader, was knocked out for the rest of the season, Ed Jones had to step up and become a leader, and he did just that. He finished third. That was Dale Coyne Racing's best ever result in this race. And Matt Shilton, we need to talk more about Matt Shilton because he led the most laps, and he very nearly could have won this thing if his strategy had paid off. Um, You know, I once jokingly remarked when Matt Shilton went to Indy Lights that, you know, Matt's Chil- Chilton Mania is going to be even greater than Mansell Mania in 1993. But for a while, it was looking like Matt Chilton, completely unheralded and disregarded as nothing more than a marginal pay driver in Formula One with Marussia for two seasons. He almost did what his world champion countryman Nigel Mansell did not do, and that's win the frickin' Indianapolis 500 for Chip Ganassi Racing. You know, after Scott Ditson's accident, Matt Shilton really galvanized that team, and he gave them the best shot that they had to win that race this year. So that could not go completely understated. Another performance that I want to pay attention to, Gabby Chavez quietly finishing ninth for first-year team Harding Racing Group. This was their first ever race. They started up a couple of months ago, and they were just fantastic the whole time. Gabby Chavez knows that this is probably his last shot to stay around in IndyCar. Harding Racing Group wants him to be the future of the team as they get off on the ground. Um, Ninth place is a very good result, and Harding Racing are also going to be at Texas and Pocono later this year. It would be awesome to see a new team come along and really make an impact the way that they did in their first ever race. Um, Just one more note on the Indianapolis 500. We've got our friends from the Grud Girls podcast, Sarah Connors, Elizabeth Worth, Catherine Benham, and Lisa Olson. We're all at the event. They're driving home right now as I record this. Y'all, just get home safely. I'm glad you had a great time watching this event and taking in all the pomp and pageantry of the month of May at Indianapolis. I am so proud of you guys. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the 101st running of the Indianapolis 500. It was a throw ride from start to finish from the ultimate agony of Ditson's crash and seeing a lot of my favorites chances go up and smoke with Fernando Alonso's engine failure and Joseph Newgarten getting caught up in a late wreck to the joy and the ecstasy of seeing a first time Indy 500 winner do something amazing for a country that he has pretty much carried on his back for the better part of 15 years in Takuma Sato winning that race that is so awesome King, you heard apparently there was a Monaco Grand Prix. Oh, really? I, I I didn't I didn't know. I got up at I got up at you know seven in the morning to just watch you know Prince Albert just sitting there for two hours, chilling on the Channel Four desk, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> having lunch like classy as fuck. Um, arrangement going. It's, um, Apparently there was a race as well, and according to my reports, Sebastian Vettel won it. Yes, woo, go Seb. Yeah, Sur- surprisingly, starting like it's not he didn't lead lights to flag. He didn't he didn't overtake Kimmy at the start of the race and just lead to the end. There was actually some strategery going on. 
We'll talk about that in a minute, but you have to go back to qualifying. Raikkonen got his first pole position in 129 races. Um, It's not been mentioned at all on the broadcast at all by anyone ever, David Croft. But um, the last time Kimi Raikkonen qualified on pole position for a race was the 2008 French Grand Prix. The last French Grand Prix by current standards. (laughs) Um, which kind of says a little bit about, about Kimi Raikkonen and his seemingly lack of qualifying success in recent times. But, uh, yeah, sadly, uh, Raikkonen had gone 129 races since his last pole position. It was a stonking lap, by the way. Um, just, you know, the fastest ever lap of Monaco, a 112.1, beating, uh, Bottas and, and Vettel. Vettel was, was second on the grid and, um, and Bottas third. Just by about half a tenth between them, very, very close indeed. But Raikkonen coming out on top. Um, as, you, as, as King mentioned, Raikkonen had the control of the first half of the race. Um, this is only good, ever going to be a one stopper by, by all by all accounts. And um, King, well, shenanigans took place during that round of pit stops. Apparently, according to who you ask. Yeah. Like, uh, according to who you ask as, you know, the, the three-time world champion might have you believe that, uh, someone was ordered to go into pit lane and give Vettel the overcut, which I don't know in what world would you, you know, yeah, team strategy, guys, we're gonna, to give Vettel the advantage, we're gonna let Kimmy have the undercut. Yeah. Now, what's funny about this? This is a fun fact that people may not have talked on. Shout out to C. Shout out to C. Nan, good man. Which we've had six races so far. Four of the six have been won from second on the grid. So it's kind of walking proof that there is flexibility for strategy this year. Like we've seen the overcut work, we've seen the undercut work this year, and a lot of people immediately pointed to. T- when Sebastian Vettel came out of the pits in front after those after that pit stop. And like people were asking the question of was their team orders? Short answer in my book, no. Yeah. <laughs> Long answer. Hell no. Um slightly longer but... answer is Vettel during that overcut stint, during when Kimmy went in the pits and he had uh he had, you know, actual lead of the race, he drove for his life out there. Two absolutely stunning um, in-laps from from Sebastian Vettel. Um, they were both fastest laps of the race at the time, a 15-5 and then a 15-2. Like, at the time, that was three tenths faster than almost anyone else on track. Um, Vettel drove like a man possessed on the in-lap, had a faster pit stop than, than Raikkonen by about three tenths of a second and still only just came out in front of Kimi Raikkonen. It took two mega laps and a slightly more beneficial pit stop for, for Vettel to come out in front. Does that really scream like, oh yeah, Ferrari trying to set Raikkonen up to fail? I, I, I don't think so. Like, like I think there was reaching of the highest order taking place here. I had people t- tweeting me saying, oh yeah, this is like Austria 2002. No! Not even close! No, like... <laughs> Like, to give Lewis some benefit of the doubt, he did not know what was going on. He just saw Kimmy going to the pit lane. So Vettel why is he commenting then? <laughs> because he's Lewis Hamilton. He has to say something. 
Lewis Hamilton. Like we'll get to you. Like, we'll get to you in a minute. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna bite my tongue for two minutes on this one. But Vettel earned it. And when Vettel came out in front, he put the hammer down. Like he was a second a lap faster than Raikkonen in the second half of the race. Which kind of makes me think that Raikkonen's pace had gone in the first half of the race, and he was basically at this point backing Vettel into Valtteri Bottas, yeah. who was what one point four seconds off the front. But then was like two seconds by the time the pit stops had taken place, yeah. due to back market traffic and whatnot. They had to pit Raikkonen to, to you know basically minimise the risk of Bottas overtaking them. Vettel and, Ra- and Ricardo stayed out. They put a couple of hot laps down. Like again, Ricardo was was setting some really fast lap times as well. As a result, Vettel came out in front and, and Ricardo leaped both Bottas and Verstappen and would eventually finish on the podium. Um, Ricardo. His third Monaco Grand Prix podium in four in four years here, and really should have been the one win last year as well. Like King Daniel Ricciardo seems to have a habit of pulling his, pulling the rabbit out of the hat around here. Yeah, it seems like he he really takes a liking to these street circuits. Yeah, he's really good around them. He did a, they get another fantastic job um, from him there. Another another Ricciardo podium who's just getting the the best out of a car that's just not there for Red Bull this year so far. Um. But uh, yeah, let's cut to Lewis Hamilton's weekend. Lewis Hamilton, he was always going to have a hard time of it. He was legitimately struggling in practice, in qualifying. He was he was on the bubble for being eliminated in Q2. He, he was on a fast lap. I mean, the problem started because they, it, it, basically, if you're Mercedes, it took them two warm-up laps to get the tires going. Yeah, and so, I, I, that's that's been like the running narrative this entire season that McLaren I mean, Mercedes just don't know how to fully utilize this year's version of the Pirelli tires. And Ferrari can, and that's what's been the, the difference maker so far this season. Botas, in the end, turns out, still had a lot of pace as he very nearly stole pole off Raikkonen at the end there. Um, but Hamilton was on the bubble to get eliminated in, in Q2. He was on the lap, he was about a tenth of a second up going into the final split, and then about five seconds in front of him, Stoffel van Dorn has clipped the wall and, and, and crashed at the swimming pool. The other flags come out. Obviously, Hamilton's last hot lap gets cancelled. And, yeah, Lewis Hamilton qualifying in 13th place. And I think the first time, I think, in four years, Hamilton has failed to make Q... Failed, failed to make Q... Q failed to make Q3. Um, so, yeah, kind of nuts stuff, really, um, on that one. Lewis... Ooh, it was unlucky, but he wasn't particularly fast in the first place. I mean, this is a weekend where both McLarens made it into Q3, which kind of says it all, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, Hamilton came back in the race, ran the Ultrasofts long, jumped a few people, ended up finishing in seventh place. And Hamilton was delighted at that, apparently. He was <laughs> over the moon. He said straight up, like, I could not be happier. Like, he said seventh was the maximum on the table, and he got it. He could, he could not find a way around Carlos Sainz. He finished in sixth place. And, and this is like, I know Monaco was obviously a factor in itself, but this is like a couple seasons ago where Lewis could have a terrible qualifying, have to start from the back, and still get on the podium. Yeah, I remember Hungary um, a couple a few years ago. I think it was 20. Spun on the opening lap and still finished in third after the same came in. Kind of says it all, really. Like, again, the Mercs, it doesn't matter how fast they are. Monaco, if you can't pass, you can't pass. I don't think there was a single on-track overtake outside of the opening lap. It was 
Sad times, really. Um, <laughs> um, geez. But, yeah, like, like it, so yeah, Hamilton eventually finishing in seventh place. Um, not bad damage limitation in the grand scheme of things, given that he was out of the points um, to start off with and had to work quite hard to get back in. There was some minor carnage in front of him, luckily, which also sort, sort of helped, which we'll get to now. I mean, King... Jensen Button came back. He had a nice little good luck message from Fernando in Indianapolis. Um, Jensen threatened to pee in his seat, which was lovely. No, um, he didn't threaten. He said he was going to do it. Uh, like, please no. I'm going to pee in his seat. <laughs> said Jensen Button. And um, it was like he already had by the time we got to this, the, the late stages of the Grand Prix. Because um, he tried an audacious pass. Um, on Pascal Verlein before the tunnel came around. The hole was always closing. He hits Pascal Verlein, and Verlein ends up in the wall on his side. Um, like, we didn't see the initial how it happened for, like, a good few minutes. So we were all just sitting there going, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> sitting back be like, damn. Like, that must, like, that takes some doing. Like, like, Pascal, how did he end up on your side again? Like, wasn't the race of champions enough for you? <laughs> but it turns out Jensen had tried to dive bomb him at, at uh, the corner before the tunnel. And uh, as a result, the, the collision smacked Verline into the wall. Luckily, he was okay. Um, Jensen's car was damaged beyond repair, so he was also out. So another double DNF for McLaren. And Stoffel Van Dorn had an accident as well. Um, at, least, at least they could, you know, Honda could wipe their hands and say, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> yeah, like, we had a decent car this time around. We had both cars in Q finish, but no. What's your man's doing out there? <laughs> yep, yeah, like, Honda was like, McLaren, come get your mans, um, basically, on this one. But, uh, King, what was Jensen doing out there? I don't know. You know... He's only in there for one race and one race only, and he thought, screw it, I'm going to give people a show. Yeah, I'm going to put an F1 car into the wall, yeah! <laughs> nah, he thought he was going to get a really cool overtake. Story, Jensen, not today. Bad news, Jensen's been given a three-place grid penalty for the next race, and two penalty points in his license. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think they'll be used. Um, <laughs> but uh, there you go. Um... So, yeah, uh, Jensen punished. Uh, they don't transfer to Alonso, which people will debate about in, in the comments for several minutes. Um, but, yeah, uh, those transfer, those those penalties are not transferable, sadly. That that was that for Fernando. It was like Fernando, Fernando's car. Fernando's replacement, I should say, in Jensen Button, which is a shame because, you know, everyone loved the fact he was back. But um, not today, sunshine, basically. Um, and that was really about it to, to, to talk about for Monaco. It just wasn't, it was a Monaco Grand Prix. And sadly, people will bat for this race to the hilt, but it still is just a boring race. And it's even worse now, given these cars are wider and even harder to overtake because of the dirty air and whatnot. So, yeah, Monaco yeah. King I mean, it was very Monaco. It's very Monaco, though, for, do I, we did have sort of an interesting race up front so there was yeah. that yeah it was that i gave it an extra point for that it was it was a four out 
three out of ten. Um, but to, to run down the results real quick, Sebastian Vettel takes another race win his further the season, and now with a 25-point lead in the championship over Lewis Hamilton and the countback advantage with three wins to two. Sebastian Vettel fans, it might be time to start believing. Mm. Um, so Vettel wins, Raikkonen second, 3.1 seconds behind. The first Ferrari 1-2 since King. Want to guess where? Go on. <laughs> Ooh, I actually don't remember. It's France 2008 again. Really? <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> yeah, we've mentioned that race and ran it into the ground at this point. So much, I think Matt should probably just do a race review at this point. Like, just <laughs> the last time Ferrari was really good. France yeah, 2008. Yeah. That, that needs to be Cook's race. <laughs> that needs to be Cook's race. What, a Raikkonen victory? <laughs> Never. Uh, yep, so yeah, the 90th Ferrari 1-2 finish and the first uh, Ferrari 1-2 since France 2008. So Vettel and Riker. Daniel Ricciardo recovers from fifth to finish in third. Ed of Valtteri Bottas in fourth, who had a rampant Dutchman behind him for about 50 laps, but Max could not find a way around him. Max was angry, but took it in good grace. Max finally has a Monaco Grand Prix finish um, on his third attempt. Um, fifth place for Max Verstappen. Carlos signs another superb job from him. In sixth, um, he's doing the Lord's work in that car king. Now, can we get Carlos Sainz in a Ferrari, please? I'm here for it. I'm here for Carlos Sainz and anything that can get a podium. Yep, here for Carlos. Man is doing the Lord's work once again. Held off the Great Wall, uh, and that was Lewis Hamilton behind him in seventh place. Um, both Hasses in the points as well. Romain Grosjean in eighth place. Kevin Magnussen in tenth. Felipe Massa completing that sandwich in ninth. Hey, Williams scored a point in Monaco. Hey. Yep, somebody tell Frank. Somebody tell Frank, hey, we we don't completely suck around here anymore. (laughs) Um, Let's just say we were were also this close to to the well of of sporting craziness being busted wide open as Jolien Palmer finished in 11th place for Renault. Uh, So close. So close, yet so far for Jolien. Esteban Ocon breaks the streak of Force Indias in the points um, in 12th place. But he's actually beaten Sergio Perez for the first time. He's at the fastest lap of the race at the end. A race lap record, by the way. Yeah, um, let's have yeah, Esteban Ocon in 12th, ahead of Sergio Perez in 13th. Both of them are in the wars pretty much all race long for Force India, so their streak of points finishes has come to an end. I think it was 25 races in a row Force India had scored points until now. Unfortunate for them. Danil Kvyat was 14th, retired in the end due to damage. Lance Stroll was out in 15th place. Oil pressure combined with uh, brakes failing, um, just not safe for, for Lance to run anymore. He had to retire in 15th. Still got as a finisher, but um, didn't quite make the end in 15th place. Five more actual retirements. Stoffel van Dorn, who again hit the wall, as did Marcus Ericsson, who had a spectacular accident, crashing behind the safety car. Oh, oh Marcus. <laughs> yeah. But then Stoffel's like, hold my champagne. Yeah, it's like, Stoffel crashes it at turn one, and then during the safety trying to unlap himself, goes wide around turn one, hits the marbles, and then the wall. Oh, Marcus. Second time in his career, he's crashed behind the safety car, poor guy. Um, as we mentioned, Jensen Button and Pascal Verlein didn't make it. And sadly, Nico Hulkenberg bottom of the pile due to a gearbox failure on lap 10. 
only only uh, 13 actual finishes. So if you took the over-under on 13.5 for finishes and you took the over, me included. Um, <laughs> so I remember on the stream, you were like, oh, you should have definitely taken the over. You basically said it was an open goal. King, there was 19 runners until lap 57. Sue me. I was in good shape. <laughs> Damn it. Um, basically, to say the least on that one. Yeah, uh, shit out of luck on that one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, the Monaco race was very Monaco, to say the least. So we'll cut to yet more thoughts fly seance from RJ O'Connell. And then after that, we'll talk about the one big piece of news coming on F1 this week. And sadly, it's fan survey time again. Oh, dear. Hello, and for the final time in this episode 88 of Motorsport 101, this is RJ O'Connell. Coming to you uh, not live because I'm trapped in a movie theater somewhere taking in uh, something. I want to say I'm walking in and checking out a few minutes of probably not Alien Covenant. I don't know. Probably not. I would maybe I'd watch it again. I'm not sure. I want to I want to see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Like, let's be real, because. They've got one of my favorite musicians, uh, James Uringer, lead singer of Mindless Self-Indulgence, who you may know by his stage name, Jimmy Urin, formerly Little Jimmy Urin, uh, playing Half Nut in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's a junker, and he's he looks awesome in that role, and I'm so proud of him. If nothing else for him and for Big Dave Batista as Drats and Chris Pratt as Star-Lord and just... Odd. Everything about the first movie was wonderful, and I'm hoping the second one lives up to my expectations. I'm getting way off track because we need to talk about the Monaco Grand Prix, whether we want to or not. Um, I thought this Monaco Grand Prix was fine by Monaco Grand Prix standards. Was there a lot of passing? No. No, there wasn't. Um, was there a whole lot of interesting tire strategies where teams would have to weigh the options of taking one or two or three pit stops during the race? Nope. No, the ultra soft tires are way too hard for this compound, and that's what happens when you don't test the cars on 2017 spec equipment, and when you make a tire, that's just a knee-jerk reaction to what the fans think they want. The Monaco Grand Prix was a pretty awesome sight to see Sebastian Vettel lead a Ferrari 1-2 and win Ferrari's first Monaco Grand Prix trophy since 2001 which was a stat that came up many, many times because for a team like Ferrari, it's quite unusual. Even in the years where Michael Schumacher was kicking all kinds of wholesale ass that it had been 16 years since they'd won this event, which is, which is really strange, but I'm glad that Vettel did it. Like in the second half of that race, I think that Vettel really asserted his authority on the event. And that was kind of a bugbear for supporters of his teammate, Kimi Raikkonen who looked very, very unhappy to finish second after taking his first pole in nearly 10 years uh, after leading for most of the race, but he didn't really seem to pull away from the field. A lot of people felt like the decision pit him first on a track where the undercut doesn't necessarily work. They thought it was just an example of Scuderia Ferrari sticking it to their number two driver when he was outperforming their golden boy, which... You know, that's not really accurate. Reckonance pace during the race was not really that impressive compared to Vettel's. 
That especially became apparent in the second half because Raikkonen really could put the distance on Vettel that Vettel did on Raikkonen. It's a bit overreaction here. It's it's nothing like Austria 2002 where Rubens Barrichello arguably dominated that race and really should have won the merit if not for team orders. And there's also the bugbear of the fact that it's just now that Kimi Raikkonen has really started to pull his own weight at Ferrari. It's still a good result and it helps Seguri Ferrari in the championship standings. Everybody just needs to calm down. We don't need to make Sebastian Vettel the enemy. I know we're going to do this anime anyway, knowing that he's going to be fighting Lewis Hamilton for a title, and he represents big, evil Scuderia Ferrari. Uh, But it's still a good day for Ferrari. It was very interesting that the undercut usually works in 95% of situations, but Monaco was the actual 5% where it did work out. Kimi Räikkönen wasn't alone. Mats Verstappen probably lost out on a podium because of this. He pitted first before Valtteri Bottas and Daniel Ricciardo, and it was Daniel Ricciardo who ended up taking the final spot on the podium. It's not going to make up for 2016, but it might help a little bit. It'll help him feel a little bit better to get another podium. Um, Red Bull looked really, really good this weekend. Um, let's just hope it can continue on through much of these other races at a lot faster circuits, because it seemed like this might have been McLaren, Red Bull's best shot to, uh, to, uh, take a win this race. I kind of held to myself and said McLaren, because this really was their best chance to score points, and they got a double DNF. Jensen Button punted off Pascal Verline, which was not the best way to end what will likely be your final race especially after you've promised to pee in Fernando Alonso's seat while he's gone. That was the most underrated moment of the race, by the way. I would say that's the highlight of Fernando Alonso and Jensen Button having a bit of pre-race bants as Button's lining up at the end of pit lane to take the start. Um, Stoffel Van Dorn was on for a great performance, and then he got... He didn't even... He got... He heard footsteps from Sergio Perez, and then he just nosed in the car. And then Mark, and that might have been only that might have been the dumbest crash if Marcus Erickson didn't nose first it into Saint-Navon under the safety car. Man, McLaren Sauber did not do well. Force India did not do well for all intents and purposes. Carlos Sainz did very well though. Carlos Sainz ran sits all day. If not for Sebastian Vettel winning, Carlos Sainz would have been driver of the day. Because he continued to do amazing things in that Scuderia Toro Rosso. He has firmly carried that team for much of the last year now since Mats Verstappen got promoted. If he doesn't have a factory seat sometime within the next three years, I know we've said this a lot a lot of other drivers in the past that deserve factory drives that never materialized. Carlos Sainz is really the kind of driver that deserves it. Also, shout-outs to Haas who got Got a pretty good result out of the day, getting both their cars in the points. Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen. That's a very good match between those two drivers. Um, I'll be honest. Monaco is a beautiful track. I love driving it in video games. I've also come to the realization that maybe Formula 1 has outgrown Monaco. I'll probably never drop it because it's so ingrained into the history of the sport now that if they drop it, it's just like, whoa, whoa, that's that's unthinkable. It would be like if NASCAR asked the Coca-Cola 600 or the Daytona 500 or if Indianapolis or if IndyCar just decided, yeah, the 500 doesn't count for championship points anymore. 
You do also have to wonder if maybe, maybe this track isn't good enough for Formula One racing anymore. Like, should they change it to a non-championship all-star race event? Should they make it a festival of junior formula, like an all-star race of sorts for categories like Formula Two or GP3? I don't know. It was something that I thought about. I don't know if they will. Um, Monaco can produce some awesome moments at times. Uh, this was certainly one of them, even if the on-track action was a bit lacking. Um, by Monaco's standards, I give it a solid sits, Ferrari, conspiracy theory, bullshit on social medias out of 10. I guess that seems fair. I don't know. Anyway, I am off for this episode. Be sure to enjoy the rest of Motorsport 101. Thank you very much for listening. Later, y'all. So, King, this is your time to shine, my friend. Time to... Time to run down the results of the 2017 GPDA fan survey. Woo! Yeah, I, I'm wondering how many of our fans are going to tune out because they're, you know, most likely also Formula One fans. This could get ugly real quickly. <laughs> Let, let's break this down, King. Let's, let's run down what you found, your, your, okay. your findings. Well, firstly, uh, gimmicks, not not very popular. Just just as a test case, I, I don't even assume there's a test case on the survey. They just put it in the survey for giggles. Uh, sport, sprinkler systems. How many do you, how, like, how much percentage of support do you think they got? Sprinklers, huh? Um, hmm. This is, welcome to Bruce Forsyth's Play Your Cards Right. Um, I'm going to say 24%. 11.8. Wow. 11. So we're not here for Bernie Sprinklers. Okay, I guess. <laughs> yep, going up. Okay, we have at 15.2. Reverse grids. Mm. See, it's not... <laughs> see, it's not really worked in World Superbikes this year, so... But the, <laughs> like... thing is, the thing is, like, there's so many, like, there's no nuance. It's just, like, reverse grids. Like... World Superbikes, you could say it's reverse grids, but it's not really reverse grid. Yeah, it's only the, it's only the top nine that swap around. Where, well, it's not even really that. It's more like the rows get swapped around. The rows get swapped, where basically, like the second row becomes the first row, and then the third, the first row for the for the race would be the third row. So, like for example, if Jonathan Ray wins, which spoiler, he does a lot. Um, he, <laughs> He'd, he'd start the next race in ninth, basically, and then never, st- never finished the last race in fourth, now inherits pole for race two. It's not really worked this year, to say that it's because Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davis have been so good this season, they can fight their way through the field anyway. It, it hasn't worked. Yeah. If, the, if, the, if, the field is, if the field is that broken, it won't make a difference. But yeah, reverse grids, yeah, lacking nuance, but yeah, that's never going to go down well, really, is it? Uh, fast, uh, fast degrading tires, got 20... 20- Two percent of support. Given the way this season's played out, I'm stunned that's as low as twenty-two. <laughs> like this, like one of the biggest hiccups this season has had is the fact that the tires are 
hell and can go more than half race distance at a canter. Um, so the fact that only 22% of fans want faster grading tires, again, I am stunned at that. <laughs> yep. Success of Alice, 23.4% of the vote. If he was here, RJ O'Connor would be like, yes, but works in Super G. Yeah, it um, works in Super GT, it works in DTM. Hmm, F1 would be interesting, to say the least. Um, hmm, that would be interesting. Okay, okay. next one up. Uh, heading to Saturdays, uh, the idea of any Saturday race in general is at 19.3%. We like our races on Sunday and at afternoon time. No ifs, no buts. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not surprised at that one. I think, like, the Sunday slot has always worked. I've never, ever seen mass outcry for races on Saturdays, really, so that kind of adds up. Yeah, I mean, a Saturday race would be in addition to the race on Sunday. Yeah, it's like a, basically like a sprint race or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, for a race for third and reserve drivers that has uh, about a third, 33% of fan support. Like, guys, that already exists. It's called Formula 2. <laughs> Try it out sometime. It's actually been quite fun so far this season. Shout, shout out to Oliver Rowland. Yeah, yeah. boy! <sighs> Replacing a full-length GP with two shorter races, 14%. <laughs> wow! No, no, no. We like our 300 kilometer race. Ifs, no buts. Um, yeah, fine, fair enough. I'm, I'm okay with that. Support for a budget cap has dropped from 54% last time the poll was taken uh, two years ago to 44% this time. Sorry, you cut out there. What was the number again? Uh, 44% this time. Why has this gone down? Like, <laughs> like, have you seen the way this, like, like Formula One's played out? It's like, so let me get this straight. We've had either a car in purple, a car in silver, or a car in red pretty much dominate Formula One for the last, call it a decade now. And you guys don't want a budget cap so much. Like, what made you change your minds on this? Was it was it Merck's winning nineteen out of twenty one races last year? Nah, nah. Like, I think, seriously, I think like up sub one, we're good. Everything's fine. Once again, Sebastian Vettel is the people's champion of four. <laughs> he saves everything just via existing. Um, clearly, but um, I don't know. Like the common sense. Like, how could the last season bit make you want a budget cap less? Okay. I don't get it. Now. The most popular thing on the survey. What do you think? Go on. Most popular thing on the survey, return of a tire war. Ugh. We're doing this again. <laughs> bring back 2004. So bring back 2005 when like, they, they crippled Bridgestone and Michelin were broken again. Like, why do you want a tire war so bad? Like, no. Like, like... Has anybody watched a Grand Prix in the last five years and said to themselves, you know what would make this race better? If we had more than one tire supplier again. <laughs> like, that would solve Pirelli's it. is the only tire supplier, and they can barely get the teams to help them make a wet tire. Yeah, like, everybody hates Pirelli, and it's like, Pirelli are like, 
the rope in a tug of war between the FIA and the, what the teams want them to be. I've always felt bad for Pirelli on this one because they can't win. Like no matter how hard they try, they can't win, and they're always in a constant fight to try and make things right. And they always end up missing the mark by or pissing somebody off. Like this year, it's clear that the tires are too grippy. Really, they need it like a cliff point again. And there's probably just not enough of a gap between tire compounds to make the three tire compound system work like we had last year. It's just not really worked out in that regard this time around, which is just, it's just sad, really. It's a shame because, like, it's not really Peretti's fault. They've been told by the FIA what to make. And yet, whenever the Grand Prix are bad, they get the shit for it. It's, it's, it's a shame, but that's just kind of how it is. I, I don't see how bringing back Bridgestone or having Michelin back would suddenly make things better. But yeah. there uh, you go. And rolling down to the lesser popular like changes. Uh, 58% of fans want uh, refueling to return. Why? <laughs> like, that, that's like the only thing I would actually support refueling because it would add another layer of strategic intrigue. Okay, that one I can get. That yeah, that's a good point. That one's fine. Okay. Yeah, that one I can. That one I can Four percent of fans also believe that there should be points for fastest lap, which again, <laughs> no harm, no foul. Uh, okay, like, would if it's if it's like four or it's one point, then fine. I'm, I, I'm, I think I'm it not... should be. I think it should be like uh, Formula Two, where it's one point and you already have to finish in the points to get that point. I could I could stretch it out one further. I'd say one point, and then if you're on the lead, I think that that should count. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, We've already had races this season where only three guys finished on the lead lap. Dre, slow your rolls. Blame Mercedes and Valtteri, but that's his engine. Like, it's not his fault that he ended up taking out like two main contenders. Um, you make a good point. In all fairness, so yeah, maybe again that top ten. I would like to see more points go to the lesser teams, so... Top 15 yeah. get points. That could work. Like, MotoGP scoring system, maybe. But um, I'd say also pivot it so that um, there's you still have the gap where race where winning the race is still prioritized, because I hated the 10-8-6 system, for example, because you, you could win, like, f- four races, and it wouldn't be as good as one retirement 10-point swing. And I think that's bullshit. So I'd like to see maybe them bring over the MotoGP system where the top 15 gets points. I've not been the biggest fan of that system either because 25 to 20 is not big enough for difference, for my opinion. I like F1's 25, 18, 15 system a little bit more. But yeah, I could see that working. And here's the only technical change that got massive support. Go on. 50.4. Yeah, 54.5% of fans think F1 should return to V8 engines. Like, I'd love to have seen a box underneath that says, why do you want to go back to V8? I'd love to hear the, I'd love to hear the reasons for that. Like, like, oh, it's the noise. It's the noise. It's got to be the noise. It don't sound nice. I reckon that would probably be how it would be. The the only like the only reason I would consider legitimate for you wanting to go back to V eight were the engines were more evenly balanced. Yeah, more balanced and cheaper. Um, because you know, 
these these engines are not cheap. These hybrid power units are very expensive, and they hurt teams that way. But um, yeah, and there's no real compensation for that um, outside of cutting separate deals with the strategy group and whatnot. Like Williams getting ten mil for seemingly no reason. Um, but yeah, okay, um, I can see why people would want to go back to the V8s, and there is a couple of fair reasons for that, but. Yeah, there's bigger fish to fly where that's concerned, if you ask me. And rising up in terms of support, 2015 had 39% of support, now has now has 47% of support, DRS. Ask yourself this, folks. Where would F1 be right now if we didn't have DRS? Exactly. Oh. That, that's why I can see it, like the support just going up year in, year out. It's the Barry Bonds of F1 rules here, where it's like, for a while in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Barry Bonds would go in because he's used to like the poster boy for the steroid era of baseball. But it's like, as more and more of guys of that era are getting in, like even the most stout of baseball writer is like, wait a minute, we like we we really can't not put Barry Bonds in now, can we? It's like so slowly. People are starting to turn around on DRS, which I guess is nice because, my God, where would we be, where would we be without it right now? <laughs> Jesus, that, that, that's a scary thought right now. Yeah, like any series that has any inkling of wanting to be, you know, popular in the mainstream has DRS in some form or another, whether it be, you know, push the pass in IndyCar or, you know, DRS in what gp2 gp i mean formula 2 gp3 now has drs dtm has drs yep it's 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 becoming more mainstream because hey we realize you're gonna have to sacrifice some drivability in there in terms of the fact that yeah if these cars are not going to be able to run side by side or run wheel to wheel you're not going to have ground effect error underneath you've got to have something to compensate and it's doing a pretty solid job right now so yeah, I'm all for, I'm all for DRS. Any other observations, King? Last one, uh, last one of anything serious. I'm going to run down a couple like joke ones afterward, but sure. yeah, uh, 23.2% of people believe that there should be customer cars. People, <sighs> going to be real with you here. If you've seen what the budget cap. Like, how can everybody be so keen on a budget cap and then not be keen on customer cars? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, if if you if you're calling for a budget, wait, wait, cap, wait, I misread it. They wrote their numbers wrong. Oh my god. Oh, oh, hang on. Breaking 20, news. Twenty three point two percent more people agreed than dis- than disagreed. So the correct number should be seventy three. They just wrote it in a really confusing way. <laughs> So stupid. Like, what are you doing, Alex Wirtz? Um, <laughs> like, okay. Like, that actually makes a lot more sense. Well done, F1. You've, you've finally cottoned on to this. Yeah, you're absolutely customer right. Cars, yeah, customer cars give the smaller teams more of a chance to be able to run close and lower their budgets a little bit. At least that way they can actually have a chance of keeping up and fighting you. And so just give them... not going bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, and don't, don't just give them last year's power units, which they can't upgrade and ultimately cripple. So last year, for Christ's sake. Yeah, because um, right now, F1 might as well be, like, a game of Monopoly. Yeah. And... I mean, which Dre insists is a good game, but let him let him hold on to his beliefs. Listen, okay, I'm really be with you here. I, I am good at Monopoly. By no means do I enjoy it anymore. <laughs> 
I, had to play, I played one with my brother on the other day that was on Xbox Live, and it was like it, it took four hours to play. It was just oh my god! It, like I am never playing Monopoly again. Like I am retiring, undisputed Monopoly champion. But Jesus Christ, never again! Um, same deal in Formula One right now. It's basically a Monopoly where if you ain't if you ain't got money, you ain't you're shit out of luck basically. Um, but so yeah, all for the customer cars here for it okay now running down the other the the other results uh apparently uh of the 6249 fins who took part in the survey all okay. of them voted for Kimi or Valtteri as their favorite driver except for 399 of them so like Finland is strong in their support of their home drivers. No way. As <laughs> <No. laughs> if Kimi Raikkonen wasn't popular enough. <laughs> also, Mercedes is the most popular team in Britain, but not in Germany. Ah, so is Ferrari the most popular team yes. overall? Yes, yes. Ferrari is okay. the most popular team overall, including in Germany. Uh, actually, but, the, support but, for, but... the support for Ferrari is almost double that of Mercedes. But Mercs will take the home field advantage because they have Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> it helps. Also, which is a bit like based off of Lewis Hamilton's comments over the weekend, which we did not bring up, uh, 43% of percent of fans believe that wait oh my god okay uh compared to last year there's a 43 percent increase in the statement that formula one has the best driver so i don't know what it was last time but it's 43 percent now so what happened out there to make most people double down on their thoughts that f1 has the best drivers because I like th- what 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 could have changed <laughs> uh, i would say maybe mark weber retiring um, Going to WC, maybe? Yeah, the smaller teams' uh, manner folding. Yeah, maybe a thing, sure. Besides, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, besides that, like it's mainly drivers in other sports retiring and the smaller teams folding. And the fact that in last year and this year, the smaller teams have basically become academy teams for the larger teams. Okay. Any any other interesting stuff? Okay. I don't know whether this is the totally legit <laughs> legit streams, but okay, a quarter of F1 fans between the ages of 16 and 34 watch F1 via live streaming on laptop or mobile. 7% over the age of 45 do. So the young'uns are aware of totally the Yes, totally. Good to know. Good to know. Okay, and of the fans who took the survey, which is extremely surprising, less than half a percent watch only the watch only F one highlights. So, Hmm. like over ninety nine percent of fans watch the races. Really? Um... Yes, 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 I know. They they watch Um... the full length races. Like, if you've gone out of your way to, to to do a survey on F1, you're watching these races. Like, let's be clear here. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and they also ask fans their list of essential Grand Prix. They 
So there are five essential Grand Prix for two-thirds, so yeah, 66%. Uh, Monaco, Monza, Spa, and Silverstone were the top were the top four of the top four of Grand Prix that should not be dropped. Okay, yeah, no real surprises there. Yep, and the amount of fans who describe F1 as exciting has tripled between the time the poll was last taken in 2015. What? <laughs> like, okay, what happened in the last year and a half that's just made people think, yeah, this is a more exciting sport? Like, Sebastian, like, are you doing the Lord's work here? If you tricked people into thinking the races are mag- have magically gotten better in the last year and a half, is it because Nico Rosberg actually had a shot at winning the title? Is that what's done it? I wonder. <laughs> mm. Bit suspect just, on that one. Just a couple of statistic statistical news. Okay. Uh, the poll had more participants than last year. They don't say how many, but yeah, they had over 215,000 participants in the survey from 194 countries. Yay. So all only, over the world. People only it. eight UN recognized countries were not represented in the survey. <laughs> well, since then I, yeah, the Marshall islands, uh, Nauru, like Samoa, Equatorial Guinea, uh, the South Sudan, and uh, Sao Tome and Principal. Mm. All answers that will end up on the game show pointless next week. (laughs) And absolute last fact, Max Verstappen is more popular with fans over the age of 45 than fans between the ages of 16 and 24. He's the new Senna, King! <laughs> He's the new Senna. So obviously Senna fans love him, and the youngins are like, God damn, this Verstappen kid. <laughs> yeah, the oldies are like, that's our boy right there. Like he, He's making... Uh, I, I was watching um, Matt from MSTF1 review Spain the other oh, day. And, yes. <laughs> like... Like I watched this morning, and there's a band that that as an American flag with with like with the quote like Max make F one great again, and I'm like, oh, for the love of Christ! Yeah, that that <laughs> banner describes Max Max Verstappen's F one fan base in a nutshell. Yeah, just blah. So King, I think we're I think we're just about done here. Yeah, we're about done. Let me do a last second sweep for any breaking news. Apart from Jamie Paxson, like, grilling our uh, presidential candidates, or in this case, prime minister candidates, that's about it, from what, I, from what I can tell. Yep, and yeah, just, you know, a little inspirational note from Takuma Sato. Takuma Sato hopes that his win will inspire more Japanese drivers to come to America and try their hand at IndyCar. Here for it. Here for it. <laughs> oh, do we do we even mention what had happened after the race had taken place from that jer- with that with that sports writer from the Denver Post? I'm going to mention this very briefly. Uh, he said on Memorial Day weekend. I don't remember his name. I don't think he even warrants his name being mentioned yeah. because just Denver we... Post sports writer. So like, you, if you guys yeah. don't like this quote, just air your grievances at the Denver Post. Yeah, t- um, yeah. Tell Woody Page what's got, what's up. Um, but yeah, he, like, I'm not going to name this person because they don't deserve to be named, quite frankly. Um, but he said that he was uncomfortable with a Japanese driver winning the Indy 500 on Memorial Day weekend in the United States, which 
all I can basically say in response to that is, fuck you, basically. <laughs> you racist piece of shit. Um, yeah, like, I, it, it has since been told that that person has been fired from the Denver Post, so... <laughs> Justice has well and truly been served. So I, I, I found this out in our Discord chat as this podcast was going on. Um, yeah, so said like, yeah, Terry Fry was his name for what it's worth. Yeah, um, now, now we can say who he is because he's been fired. Yeah, so Terry, do better in in life. Quite frankly, um, you deserve to lose your job. Quite frankly, and I hope you have a really hard time finding a new for coming out with a idiotic tweet like that. Um, like, there is only good things that can come from a Japanese winner of the Indy 500. Stop being such a racist shit. Um, quite frankly. So, yeah, on that note, uh, <laughs> we're all just about to wrap this show up. Um, thank you very much for listening. Places you can find us one last time are on youtube.com forward slash most 101. Stay tuned. There may or may not be a highlight reel of the end of the 500 regarding a certain Chris Cook and commentary of the finish of that 500. It's being manufactured as we speak. Um, keep an eye on that. We're on Facebook.com forward slash um, Motorsport 101. We're on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101 and our personal Twitters at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, and at RJ O'Connell. And if you really like us, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. And don't forget to check all of our details out on the website at www.motorsport101.net. Until next time, I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Ryan King. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. I hope IndyCar goes back to Japan. Here for it. If Takuma Sato like, is giving us a landscape for entertainment factors in IndyCar over the years, I'm all for more Japanese drivers taking part. Here yeah. for it. It's not like those Honda Juniors are getting to F1 anytime soon. <laughs>